To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. Who is the true church? Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. As I taught in a previous episode, the word and concept of church, according to scripture, is better understood with the literal translation of called forth. And when we challenge our preconceptions and experiences in this way, we come to see that church isn't the building or even the worship services, but the people. The called forth is a living organism, and we, the followers of Yeshua, are literally parts of the living Messiah himself. Yeshua is our head, and we are collectively members of his body. Each of us set in place with various and unique functions, whether we actually function in them or not. And we're all arranged for a single unified purpose. We are to go forth together in our calling in Yeshua. This is what I'd like to talk to you about today, to find out just who the called forth really is. And we'll do that by taking a brief scriptural survey of all the different working parts of the called forth. And I think you'll find that it looks quite a bit different than what we've traditionally been led to believe. So you ready? All right. Well, as we learned previously with Paul, the called forth is the body of Messiah. And in 1 Corinthians 12, he describes at length how this body is supposed to function and who this body is made of. Most people mistake this passage as a teaching about spiritual gifts or gifts of the Spirit. But that's not Paul's main point at all. It's actually about how the different individual functions of each member of the body enable the proper functioning of the called forth as a whole. So let's start with 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, which begins with spiritual gifts. Now, there are diverse varieties of gifts, but the same ruach, the same spirit. And there are diverse varieties of service, but the same master. And there are diverse varieties of workings, but it is the same God who is working them all in all people. And to each individual, the manifestation of the Ruach has been given for the common good. So the body of Messiah, and therefore the called forth, is first of all spiritual. And Paul introduces here the three main areas of how the Spirit operates within the body. Through gifts, service, and workings. The possible meaning of workings being the special energy needed to accomplish certain spiritual acts. The Greek here is pretty unclear. And he says that within each of these categories, there are diverse varieties, meaning that there are different ways that the Spirit can manifest in order to accomplish what the body needs done. In other words, the body of Messiah has a huge number of different working parts, just like our physical bodies are made up of uncountable pieces, both big and small, all working together for the health and vitality of the body. And that's possibly the most important point that Paul's making here, though it's often severely overlooked today among those who seek to exercise the so-called charismatic gifts. 
And I'll list those in just a minute. And that point is that the manifestation of the Ruach has been given for the common good. This means that everything that Paul's about to say from this point forward needs to be understood in this light, that the main purpose of spiritual gifts isn't to edify the individual and bring us closer to God, but explicitly to build up all the called forth collectively. And Paul says as much a little while later in chapter 14, verse 12. Since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek that you may abound in them for the building up of the called forth. So all the manifestations of the Spirit then, whether they're the charismatic gifts or service or what have you, are given to each of us not for ourselves, but so that we can be a functional part of the body for the common good. So going back to chapter 12, picking up in verse 8, Paul then lists out some of these diverse varieties of ways that the Spirit operates through us within the called forth. He begins with what are generally considered the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. The word charismatic comes from the Greek word for gift. And those are word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healings, inworkings of powerful acts or miracles, prophecy, discernings of spirits, different kinds of languages, or in the archaic English, tongues, and interpretation of languages. So when people think of spiritual or charismatic gifts, these are usually the ones they're talking about. And while it can be difficult to discern in practice whether or not anyone authentically possesses one of these, there's nothing in Scripture to indicate that these can't function today, despite the fact that some teach that spiritual gifts ceased long ago based on a forced reading of 1 Corinthians 13.10. Needless to say, as far as Paul was concerned, the exercise of these gifts were a vital and accepted part of the functioning of the called forth, and this in spite of any lack of balance or misuse. Then later in verse 28, Paul also adds what we might think of more as naturally endowed inclinations or skills, but are actually still manifestations of the Spirit. And two of those are the gifts of helping and governing. And finally, in Romans 12, beginning in verse 7, Paul has another list which contains still more spiritual parts of the called forth. These include service, which might be similar to helping, teaching, exhorting or encouraging, generous giving, leading, which might be similar to governing, and doing acts of loving kindness or mercy. So each one of these manifestations of the Spirit through us, through the members of the called forth, perform a vital function in the health and operation of the body of Messiah. Some with what we might call more natural, easily explainable functions, some with what we might call more supernatural, less easily explainable functions. But whatever the manifestation just as we have in our physical bodies various parts and diverse functions, our hands, our hearts, our brains, our mouths, all working together for the sake of our own body, so it is with the called forth. As Paul says in Romans 12, 4 and 5, For as in one individual's body we each have many members, and all the members do not have the same function. So we, the many, are one body in Messiah, 
and each one members of one another. And back in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 11 and 12, Paul says likewise, And the one and the same Ruach, the Spirit, works all these, dividing to each person individually as he intends. For even as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, being many, are one body, so also is the Messiah. So we, the called forth, are first of all spiritual members of Yeshua's body, mixed together by God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 24, each of us set within the body of Messiah as God wills, which Paul says in verse 18. This organism that is the called forth then is varied, not according to our design, but God's. And that variation depends on who we each are and how God has gifted us. So in one very real sense, we shouldn't expect the called forth to be standardized wherever we go. It doesn't all have to look the same, just like we're all different from one another, yet in our bodies function alike. Collectively, the called forth is a pool of diverse varieties of gifts, service, and workings, nevertheless meant to function together as one. Now, within the larger body of the called forth, there's also another unique set of spiritual gifts, which begin to give the body a little more structure. These gifts are different from the others in the sense that they're not merely spiritually endowed to a person, but rather the person himself embodies that gift. I call these gifts the equipping ministry, of which the scriptures name five. Continuing in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Paul mentions three of them. And some indeed God set among the called forth, first emissaries or apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly teachers, afterwards those with other gifts. And in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 and 12, Paul gives the complete list, saying, And God gave some as emissaries, and some as prophets, and some as proclaimers of good news or evangelists, and some as shepherds or pastors and teachers, toward the equipping of the Kadoshim, the saints, that's us, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of the Messiah. So these five gifts are uniquely given and set by God among the called forth, the emissaries, prophets, proclaimers of good news, shepherds, and teachers. And their job is to build up and equip the called forth. That's why I call them the equipping ministry. While Paul never really explains the difference, for example, between someone with the gift of prophecy and someone who's a prophet, or someone with the gift of teaching and someone who's a teacher, the way he writes about them, along with how we find them elsewhere in Scripture, seems to indicate that these five have a more obvious level of authority from God and presence of gifting. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, for example, that there are signs of an emissary. And just in case you're wondering if there can still be emissaries or apostles today, while some say that in order to be an apostle, one would have had to be an actual eyewitness to the resurrected Yeshua or been designated by him as an apostle, that's not what the scriptures say. Because besides the original 12 plus Paul plus Matthias, who replaced Judas, the scriptures also call Barnabas an apostle in Acts 14.14. 14. Yaakov, James, the brother of Yeshua in Galatians 1.19, 
Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.25, some unnamed brothers, possibly including Titus in 2 Corinthians 8.23, possibly Andronicus and Junius in Romans 16.7, and definitely Silas and Timothy in 1 Thessalonians 2.6. They co-wrote that letter with Paul according to its first verse. And while I can't say I've ever actually seen a modern-day apostle, though there are certainly those who claim that authority, that doesn't mean we don't have any today. And it definitely doesn't mean the call forth doesn't still need them. Now, in addition to equippers apparently embodying their gifts, they also appear to be more itinerant, with emissaries especially staying in one place only for a season, moving on to build up another community, then revisiting them again at a later time. That may also apply generally to the other equippers. Paul also doesn't explain the ranking that he gives to three of the five gifts, though it seems reasonable to me to see it not so much as Paul placing them in a hierarchical order, but rather as foundational building blocks, the order in which they're laid down to build up the body. In fact, Paul says as much in Ephesians 2.20, when he says that the household of God is being built upon the foundation of the emissaries and the prophets. So I don't think that Paul's prioritizing them at all. On the contrary, the way these five have been over time elevated and assigned so-called offices among various denominations actually undermines their true role in the body, especially where it comes to pastors and teachers. While clearly important and foundational, and often very visible, equippers are no more important or necessary to the body than the other parts that we think of as weaker or less honorable, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.22. You may have a heartbeat and a brain, but without hands or feet or veins or a liver or a digestive tract, how will you function properly? Those in the equipping ministry were never meant to be venerated as specially anointed ones who do the work of ministry, ministry meaning making followers and disciples of Messiah, not ministry as in conducting worship services or outreach events, but are instead to be relied upon for support so that the ministry of serving the cause of Messiah can be done by the rest of the body. This is exactly what Paul says, that God gave these five unique gifts to the called forth toward the equipping of the Kadoshim for the work of service, for the building up of the body. So what are the functions of these special equippers? Well, in the most simple terms, based on what we can find in Scripture, emissaries help establish and drive called-forth communities, as well as connect those that are separated by geography. Prophets exhort, encourage, and bring warnings to the called-forth. Proclaimers of the good news exemplify the sharing of Messiah with unbelievers. Shepherds comfort, guide, and bring the called-forth together. And teachers help the called-forth to grasp and apply the Word of God in their lives. And apparently, as we see in Scripture, someone can embody more than one of these at a time. 
just as a person can also manifest more than one thing of the Spirit. So for the body of Messiah, while the equipping ministry is no more necessary than all the other parts, we're nevertheless incomplete and highly dysfunctional without their presence and their proper, balanced biblical operation. As Paul summarizes in Ephesians 4, verse 13, God gave the equipping ministry to the called forth until we all may come to the unity of the faith and of the recognition of the Son of God, to a perfect manhood, and to the whole measure of maturity of the fullness of the Messiah. God didn't supply equippers to the body so that they could be the ones primarily doing the work of service, but instead for the building up of the called forth in unity and maturity so that the whole body could do the work together. And finally, rounding out the called forth's simple structure and organization, while the scriptures don't give us a lot of direct instruction regarding the equipping ministry or the body's diverse varieties of gifts, service, and workings, they actually have quite a bit to say about who is responsible for keeping watch over and caring for the called forth. And those would be the overseers, who are also elders, and the servers, which some call deacons or shamashim. And we find the instructions for overseers and servers primarily in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. According to the scriptures, in the context of the called forth, the words overseer and elder are basically used interchangeably. The function of these overseeing elders is essentially as the name suggests, to oversee or watch over the people of the called forth. And as elders, they're also older people, as the term elder implies, although not necessarily elderly, as in senior citizen. The function of the servers is to also care for the called forth, but in a more auxiliary capacity, possibly helping to relieve the workload of the overseers, so the overseers can remain focused on their main job, possibly like we see the servers doing for the emissaries in Acts chapter 6. Since overseers and servers are supposed to be examined and then appointed by an emissary, Paul provides Titus and Timothy with somewhat extensive lists of qualifications, more so for the overseer. Of the eligibility requirements that overseers and servers share, these include being above reproach or unblameable, the husband of one wife, and leading his own house well. Additionally, a case might be able to be made also for women servers, based on the example of Phoebe in Romans 16.1. So let's break these requirements down a bit. To be above reproach or unblameable basically means to be without fault. And while I don't think it'd be fair to characterize this as requiring absolute perfection, it's still setting the bar pretty high. An overseer especially needs to be of particularly excellent character. I think the rest of Paul's description of a good overseer or server basically explains in more practical terms what he means by above reproach. Speaking explicitly of overseers, Paul says that he should be a lover or friend of strangers, a lover of good, of sound mind, righteous, undefiled, self-controlled or temperate, 
respectable, gentle, and have a good testimony from those outside the community. And also, speaking primarily of overseers, he should not be self-pleasing, quick-tempered, given to wine or much wine, violent, given to dishonest gain, contentious, a lover of money, or newly planted in the faith. And there are a few other variations on this that Paul says specifically of servers. So an overseer especially needs to be a man of excellent character in order to be what Paul calls unblameable or above reproach. And as for overseers and servers needing to be the husband of one wife who leads his own house and children well, there's a very good reason why Paul requires this. Because the state of a man's household is a reflection of the man. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.5 that leading one's own household well is necessary because if anyone has not known how to lead his own house, how will he take care of the called forth of God? So a man whose house is in order, who is the husband of one wife and has faithful, submissive, under-control children, will be the kind of man that will make a good caretaker of Messiah's body. Where the qualifications of the called forth's overseers and servers significantly diverge concerns one of the primary functions of the overseer or elder. And despite this function being typically fulfilled today by those in the role of pastor or similar, it's been scripturally assigned to the group of overseeing elders. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and Titus chapter 1, verse 9, that the overseer should be adept at teaching, holding firmly to the faithful word, so that he may be able to also exhort others in the sound teaching and to refute the contradictors. Now again, in light of how most people think of preachers and teachers today, I don't think it'd be fair to the text to read into this that an overseeing elder needs to be an accomplished pulpit or classroom-style Bible teacher, although it would probably be good if he can at least facilitate a Bible discussion. But first and foremost, an overseer needs to be able to teach, apply, and impart the truth of God's Word in any way that helps others behave scripturally in their everyday lives. This is the core of what it means to exhort others in the sound teaching. But Paul also says that through such teaching, the overseer also needs to be able to refute the contradictors. This speaks to perhaps the most important reason for the overseer's teaching, and that is to help protect the called forth. Paul speaks to this in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, where he's exhorting the elders at Ephesus by employing the imagery of a shepherd protecting his flock. Be careful for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, has made you overseers to feed the called forth of God that he acquired through his own blood. I have known that after my departing, savage wolves will enter into you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, there will arise men speaking distorted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, be awake. So Paul's exhorting the overseers to be careful, to be awake for the called forth. 
and to feed the flock, because men will come in among and rise up from within the called forth who will, quote, speak distorted things to draw away the disciples. The feeding of the called forth that he's telling them to be careful to do is the act that's providing that protection. And in this context, this feeding appears to mean feeding them sound teaching by word and by example. Not seeker-sensitive self-help sermons or motivational preaching with a few barely related scriptures sprinkled in, and also not academic, heady, minutia-laden, scholarly analysis, but sound teaching that expounds God's word simply, that tells the hard truths in order to protect and inoculate people's minds against the distortions and contradictions of those savage wolves who are there to destroy the flock and their walk with Messiah. This makes me think of all the unbiblical, watered-down, worldly, progressive values and distortions of God's Word that have successfully infiltrated today's body of Messiah. If nothing else, overseers should be teaching and speaking and leading and persuading and keeping alert, as it says in Hebrews 13, and acting in all areas of their lives in ways that make sure the people know the truth of Yeshua's sacrifice what it accomplished, what he died for, and how the scriptures instruct and exhort us to think and behave in our normal everyday lives, as well as in difficult circumstances, in response to our eternal need and the truth of that salvation. Perhaps this is why Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.17 that elders who are leading well are worthy of double honor, especially those laboring in word and teaching. Making sure that Yeshua's disciples remain his disciples by caring for and feeding and being a servant leader to God's flock is one of the most demanding functions within the body of Messiah, and it's the responsibility of overseers. Kepha, Peter, indicating that there may even be some overlap between equipping shepherds and overseeing elders, likewise exhorts the overseeing elders in 1 Peter 5.1. Therefore, Zechanim, elders, who are among you, I, who am a fellow Zakin, a fellow elder, exhort you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, overseeing not because you are forced to, but willingly according to God, and not for dishonest gain, but eager to serve and not as lording it over those allotted to your care, but becoming examples of the flock. So with that, we now have the three main parts of what the scriptures describe as those who constitute the organism that is the true called forth. First, the many members of the body, in which the spirit operates through diverse varieties of gifts, service, and workings, mixed together and set within the body by God, gifted and functioning, not for the sake of the individual, but for the common good. Then, from within the larger body, two smaller groups give the organism some simple structure. First, the equippers, the emissaries, prophets, proclaimers of good news, teachers, and shepherds, a.k.a. pastors, although maybe not pastors as we typically find them today. These connective ligaments embody their gifts, 
which are given for the equipping of multiple called-forth communities for the work of service and for building us up collectively in unity and maturity. And lastly, the servant leaders, who are the overseeing elders with their servers, who keep watch over and care for the called forth like a husband and father cares for his family, with the overseers being directly responsible for feeding and protecting God's flock through the sound teaching of Scripture, some laboring especially in word, but all laboring by personal example. Now, I realize this is still somewhat nebulous compared to what we're used to when we think of as church. But that's because the blueprint that the scriptures provide about who the called forth is doesn't include a lot of detail. Thankfully, God's given us plenty of information here to be able to make some practical application, and I'll be doing that for you in a later teaching. But for now, when we look at this biblical picture of the called forth as compared to what we have today, And I'll admit, I haven't visited every single church or Messianic congregation, so I invite you to enlighten me if I'm wrong here. But as far as I can tell, this scriptural pattern for the called forth community is vastly different from the way most people today view and experience church. By and large, our Messianic congregations and churches don't look like this at all. While we might catch glimpses of it here and there, Throughout the many different meeting styles and venues and programs and activities and kinds of congregational government and organization, the one thing that most every congregation has in common, whether they're willing to admit it or not, is that the structure comes first. The people are viewed as fitting within the framework of the organization and service rather than the other way around. The church's function is now in the form rather than the people. In other words, man's idea of church became complex and institutional, while the called forth of the Bible is simple and organic. One is based on form and structure. The other is based on people. One is brick and mortar. The other, living stones. This is why we need to ask Not only what is the true church, but who is the true church? Because until we can profoundly grasp the idea that the called forth consists solely of us, that together we form an organism, not an organization, that we are not a business, but a body, until we get this, then we will never understand how to truly organize and operate within the gifts and assignments that God has given us. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 and 27. For the body is also not one member, but many. And you are the body of Messiah, and in particular, its members. And in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, he also says, Speaking the truth in love, may we grow up in all things into him who is the head, Messiah from whom the whole body grows, being fitted together and united through the support of every joint, according to the proper working of each single part. God has placed us in Yeshua's body, not just to sit in a pew facing frontward, passively receiving from a special select few who stand apart from the people. 
He has instead placed and gifted us all for the common good, for the active building up of one another face to face, each of us spiritual, necessary, fully functioning members of Messiah's living called forth. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI through your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to rate, review, share, follow, or subscribe to the podcast to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting a right, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom. Shalom.